0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nellie. Our guest this week is Dave Puglia, President and CEO of Western Growers. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Western Growers' Dave Puglia next This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Produce growers and shippers face a sea of challenges ranging from market disruptions and worker safety issues from the COVID pandemic to regulatory issues ranging from crop protection to the supply of available water for their crops. Western growers Dave Puglia says they'd very much like to get back to some semblance of normal.
1: I don't know that we can really project yet what normal will be when we come out of all of this. And I say that because, as we all know, when the food service sector literally shut down in March, uh, that stranded a lot of product. It put a lot of growers and shippers in harm's way, and they suffered a lot of economic loss. But now, a year later, we have a realignment of supply chains that reflect um, the demand changes that have occurred in our society and yet we see the food service sector coming back to some degree, incrementally, you know, week to week, month to month. What's difficult is to project exactly how quickly it will come back and whether it will ever come back to the same volume it represented before, uh, on the demand side. And, and I, I think it's, it's foolish to try and pre- predict that with any certainty other than to say we know that there will be increasing demand in food service again. Universities will eventually have students back in dorms, and their food service um, infrastructure will be up and running again. Hotels and resorts will be back up and running again. Las Vegas is coming back online. As all those things happen, food service demand is going to increase. So I think for a lot of fresh produce growers, the question is still, how much do I risk on the food service side if I want to go back into that supply chain where I might have been before March of 2020? Or how much do I want to now stick with the retail supply chain channels that I've hopefully developed in the last year through all that pain? There will be opportunity uh, for folks to make some money on the food service side as it comes back online, but there's still this sense of risk that if I move a bunch of my production back into food service, what if there's a snapback with one of these new variants of COVID and we end up going back into a shutdown mode? Am I going to be stuck again with millions of dollars of crops sitting in a field ready to be harvested that has nowhere to go. So I just, I, I think it's still a very high-risk um,
0: situation for a lot of, a lot of growers. What do you think a new normal might look like?
1: Well, I think that there will be some permanent changes to our eating habits, our purchasing habits. And so I think that new normal is going to place a greater emphasis with some staying power on cooking at home with ingredients and products that people may not have used before, because this last year has forced everybody to think creatively about hunkering down and and doing for ourselves what restaurants used to do for us many nights of the week, uh, but I do think there'll be a long-term change in eating habits that has more diversity from the produce section being purchased uh, for home preparation and consumption than was the case before, and that again provides opportunity. But the the you know the magic eight ball doesn't tell us exactly what percentage of which fresh produce commodity is going to continue to ride high in the produce aisle and which ones won't.
0: So the Farm to Family Food Box program continues through the end of next month. Is that something Western growers would like to see continue after its current authorization?
1: I think we would like to see it continue at some level, but we would also like to see USDA place more emphasis uh, than uh, the prior administration did on using some of those monies that were dedicated to both the food box program and to worker safety cost offsets for producers to go to to worker safety. There just hasn't been enough uh, directed to farmers who have had to spend millions of dollars on the fly during the last year to protect their workers from the pandemic as best they can. And again, much of this was information that was coming at them uh, very rapidly and information that was changing very rapidly about best practices to protect workers. But In the face of all that chaos, they um, needed to and did open their checkbooks and spent a lot of money on partitions, reconfiguring harvest equipment, which reduced efficiency dramatically, buying additional buses to transport workers because we had to space them apart, the workers apart on buses. Those kinds of things cost a lot of money, and uh, we would like to see USD put more attention to that because that will be an ongoing expense. That's not going to stop, even with the vaccine uh, now finally Vaccines, I should say, now finally coming out. We think we're still going to be um, in worker protection mode relative to COVID for some time.
0: The USDA tried to respond. Congress tried to respond to the devastation that came from COVID-19. Was there enough support for your industry, or are they still left wanting even now?
1: The hit that many of them took in 2020 was far greater than CFAP relief funds could fill. Uh, because of the way it was structured uh, with the cap at $750,000, where you have a partnership that's in active farming. Uh, I had members at the time in March, April, May of last year who were losing $50,000 per week for months at a time. So um, as much as it it was helpful to sort of salve the wound, uh, there's absolutely no doubt that the hit taken economically for many fresh produce growers and shippers was far greater than CFAP could fill. Uh, so it, it was helpful, but, you know, let's be let's be candid about its limitations. There's no way you can recover that much lost income uh, with a $750,000 cap.
0: Do you want a seat at the table when discussing possible climate policy with carbon sequestration rewards? Can you contribute?
1: We do want a seat at the table, and we do think we can contribute. Uh, we have, of course, a high uh highly diverse mix of crops that represent the specialty crop sector, uh, 300 or more. Uh, and so I think there's a wide variety of practices that can be examined to store carbon, sequester carbon, and be compensated for that practice depending on the crop. You know, the obvious answer here would be that uh, permanent crops, trees and vines, have the capability of storing quite a lot of carbon where, you know, annual crops, you know, melons, vegetables, etc., less so. Nonetheless, there are still practices that can be applied that um, help with carbon sequestration or reduce carbon emissions, and uh, we do need to have all sectors of agriculture engage in that discussion. I think there is some trepidation in the produce sector, especially out here in the West, that where we, and especially in California, have had a lot of experience with climate change policy at the state level that has affected our operations, the thinking around climate change policy and agriculture inside the Beltway is probably, you know, more driven by Midwestern concerns rather than the fresh produce industry's concerns, and that's probably not um, surprising to, to be the case. But uh, given our our role and potential upside in participating in a climate uh, program, yes, we need to be at the table, and yes, we can offer quite a lot. I think in terms of our experience in the West. Um, and hopefully inform a federal policy that keeps farmers not just viable but profitable even with the new climate uh, regime that would be imposed upon them.
0: How would an electric vehicle mandate, especially for California how will that affect your growers and your your processors?
1: Well, it could be devastating. you know that's not I think an overstatement when you talk about flipping the switch from a regulatory standpoint in California to require that All of our on-the-road and on-farm trucks go to electric. Now, the state hasn't exactly commanded that outcome. The regulatory proposal strongly suggests that that should be the outcome, but there is a very important phrase in the regulatory package, uh, which is the phrase, to the extent feasible. So that is the phrase that gives us an opportunity to help the state think through what a flip of the switch might entail for this sector of our economy. Agriculture is a very large and important part of California's economy, especially in concentrated areas of the state where agriculture is really the economy. To suddenly um, require the, the electrification of every piece of equipment we use, including the over-the-road trucks that deliver our products to market, is not feasible. Not now. It may not be feasible in five years or ten years. Uh, when it is feasible, it still has to be cost-effective. It still has to be economically. Um, feasible relative to our competition. And and so that goes to a larger point that we struggle with in California all the time, which is the economic disparity in California versus our competing states and countries in terms of the cost of production. It costs much more to produce a unit of anything in California as opposed to doing that in another state or especially in another country. This mandate, if it were to be um, applied without having feasible and effective and economic uh, technology ready to go and done in isolation relative to other states and countries could have a very serious impact on California's economy. And again, concentrated in areas that really are um, dominated by agriculture.
0: With all respect to the leadership in California, how can your growers compete and survive with the many regulatory issues that are bearing down on you from state government? Well,
1: they have learned over the years to continue to innovate their way around senseless regulations, and California has a lot of them. Many regulations, by the way, if you look at them on a standalone basis or in isolation, are are quite defensible. And you can see the purpose behind that regulation as being something worthwhile, but typically they are not implemented with agriculture in mind, without an understanding of agriculture, and more importantly, they are almost never contemplated in the context of the whole um, host of regulations that have been loaded onto the camel's back over the years. To give you an example, studies that have come out of Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, show that uh, for citrus production in California, the regula- compared to Texas, the regulatory cost in California is five times higher than the regulatory cost in Texas for lettuce production, uh, California compared to Arizona, double the regulatory cost to produce in California than in Arizona. Uh, so it, it it is a very serious challenge. Innovation and technology have enabled us to stay viable, along with great soil, great weather, um, and great yields and great product. But at some point, you know, we have to really speed up our introduction of ag- agricultural technology. Um, automation of our processes of harvest of weeding and thinning of um, production in the in the processing plants if we can't speed up the introduction of ag tech into the fresh produce sector, I don't know that we can hang on. I think that the the costs of production here driven by regulations are already uh, far too high relative to our competing states and countries and I don't see that gap closing anytime soon so we're very focused on AgTech is a long-term solution to keep us operating in California profitably.
0: I see challenges with your nutrient management plan, challenges with the herbicides you can use, challenges with the insecticides, even the machines that you use in the field. At what point does the producer say, we're done?
1: Well, a lot of them have, and uh, that is something we try and and keep front and center to um, our elected leaders and regulators in California that for all of their posturing to promote small farmers, small sustainable farming in California, they're doing everything possible to make that impossible, right? I mean, through policy decisions made, again, maybe not one policy by itself, but the entirety of them together, we are doing everything possible to motivate producers to set up operations someplace else, and they are. You know, most of our members and Western Growers, I would say, either are currently operating in multiple states and in Mexico and other countries or are seriously contemplating it. I'd say very few are still California only and and intent to stay California only. They can't afford it. And looking over the horizon, they're projecting costs to continue to increase around wages and and other regulatory um, burdens. How do you pass the farm on to the next generation? You know, looking at that trend line of, of increased cost of production. So, California has to make a decision, and I don't think it's it's a decision that is being made intentionally. I think we're falling into it unintentionally, which is to say our future doesn't include farming. Now, we're still the biggest farm production state in the country uh, by a considerable margin, and uh, because of the innovation of our farmers and ranchers here, I think we will be for some time. But uh, that, I think, is, is part of what has lulled to sleep our policymakers into believing that no matter what they do, Farming will continue to be productive and continue to provide economic livelihood to millions of Californians. But on the evidence, we know that ag capital is not uh, growing in California. It's moving to other states and other countries, and that ought to be the, the canary in the coal mine.
0: Are water challenges becoming a much bigger obstacle, and is it costing you crops or costing you acreage right now?
1: Water supply stress has been a growing problem, and it's becoming acute in some areas, especially in the San Joaquin Valley, which is a very high-production region, as you know. Um, and I think one of the um, consequences of that is that as water has become more scarce, every unit of water becomes more expensive. Even though these are federal and state water supply systems, uh, you still have to, in many cases, secure water on the spot market, to um, be able to irrigate your crops. And so what's happened over the course of years is farmers are moving to higher value crops. In many cases, that means trees. That means almonds and pistachios and walnuts. And you can't um, shut off the water with permanent crops. You've got to keep water going or you lose that entire investment, unlike an annual crop. And so there's a real conundrum here. If you uh, want to maintain your economic viability in California, given the cost of production here... You're going to have to grow higher-value crops, and that probably means going more and more to permanent crops that cannot be fallowed. And so, um, again, the the question has to be, at what point do we make an educated and deliberate decision about whether we want farming in California and to what degree? California passed a groundwater management law uh, some years ago. It's now in the implementation phase that puts very strict um, plans in place to limit how much groundwater farmers can extract. And again, this hits the San Joaquin Valley especially um, hard. At the same time, we've been reducing through policy decisions at the federal and state level the amount of water supplied to them over surface systems, water that falls as snow and rain in the northern part of the state and has historically been captured behind dams and then um, sent through canals and aqueducts to the central and southern part of the state used for irrigation and for cities like Southern California, Los Angeles that supply has been constricted since 2008. So when you are asking farmers in the San Joaquin Valley to pull less water from the ground at the very si- same time you're restricting their access to surface water that has historically been supplied, you're putting immense pressure, obviously, on their options. And as many of them have already planted permanent crops, uh, that really puts a lot of stress on their businesses, and it, again, incentivizes people to start looking for some other um, place to, to operate, because California is making it abundantly clear that water is going to be a stressor that um, ha- is only going to get more difficult.
0: President Biden has been talking about immigration and immigration reform, and we've seen the introduction of the Workforce Modernization Act. Are we losing crops? Are we losing acres? Is your industry suffering because you don't have enough workers?
1: Yes, Absolutely. We've proven that. Uh, We provided uh, data to Senator Feinstein uh, way back in, I think it was 2010, that demonstrated without a doubt uh, that we had lost thousands of acres of production at that time to Mexico simply because our members couldn't secure an adequate labor supply, labor force in California and Arizona. That has become worse over time, not better. And of course, it runs in concert with the regulatory pressures that we have in California and the water pressures that you know, combined to help motivate people to go. But that is absolutely not um, in doubt that we are losing production in in California and other parts of the West and the produce sector to Mexico because we just don't have the labor supply. Our average age of our farm workers has increased to, I believe, it's now 43 years old. Ten years ago, I think it was, you know, in the mid-30s. Our workforce is aging out. They're not being replaced. The border has been relatively secure these last 15 years. It's much harder to get across, which is why... Um, people pay coyotes $5,000 or more to try and get across. And so without that um, flow of, of labor, legal or illegal, adequate to um, to work on our farms, we've had a, a very serious and, and worsening labor situation in the produce sector in the West especially. And so that that has to be cured if we're going to keep this industry viable and keep it in the U.S.,
0: so look into your Western grower's crystal ball. Is it the Biden administration and the 117th that can get this across the finish line?
1: Only a fool would be optimistic about getting immigration reform done. So call me a fool. I'm optimistic. I think that the passage of the Farm Workforce Modernization Act in 2019 with a pretty healthy bipartisan vote out of the House, uh, most Democrats voting in favor and 34 Republicans voting in favor, I think that was an incredibly hopeful and helpful first step that leads us to where we are today, which is the reintroduction of that bill with some very minor changes for dates and things like that. Uh, If we can again get a good bipartisan vote out of the House, uh, then we hopefully have some momentum in the Senate. And I think the White House, this president, clearly wants to to, um, make some progress on immigration. He has a proposal that is very uh, comprehensive, very ambitious, probably too much for Congress to swallow. And I think that provides an opportunity for uh, our industry to move the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, perhaps alongside a fix for DACA, for the, the DREAMers. Uh, but I, I think our case has been well made, and that's why we saw bipartisan support for our bill in 2019, and we're going to see it again here in coming weeks as the House takes the bill up.
0: The previous administration was able to renegotiate a North American trade agreement, and USMCA is in place. Did it resolve differences that you had with Canada and Mexico from the Western growers' perspective? And do some of the issues that remain primarily for producers out of the Southeast, the challenges that they're facing, do they threaten you or threaten to disrupt this plan?
1: We do see USMCA as an improvement over uh, the old NAFTA agreement, especially in the provisions that require Mexico to, um, to increase their uh, compensation levels for ag labor, to be more diligent in um, enforcing those labor provisions. Uh, that tends to equalize the playing field a bit uh, with U.S. production, and uh, with very high wage rates in the West, we we actually you know, get some benefit out of that. So we feel pretty good about those provisions. The um, seasonal and perishable concerns that our colleagues in the Southeast have raised are serious, and um, I would say... Depending on circumstances, which crop you're talking about, which season you're talking about, they have some very serious and legitimate complaints. Um, I think this administration is going to take a hard look at those on a case-by-case basis, and that's what we're going to do. We have members who produce on both sides of the border, but I think where we see a clear example of unfair competition um, with Mexican produce flooding the market. Uh, we would have to and want to lean into that with the administration as well. We just want a fair playing field, and I think everybody wants that. And so, um, this administration is going to have its hands full looking at those seasonal and perishable um, allegations of unfair trade with Mexico. Because again, I think it's it's very fact specific, based on the commodity, based on the season, based on uh, the facts of the of the volume imported or exported to the U.S. The prices set. All of those factors are, are going to determine, I think, the administration's look at whether they should apply a trade remedy or not. Uh, so it, it, it's going to be complicated, I think, but those are serious and, and legitimate concerns that need to be examined by the administration, again, on a case by case basis.
0: Dave Billy, a lot of challenging issues in front of your Western growers. We want to thank you for taking time to be a part of this edition of Open Mic. David is Open Mic, and today you have the last word, sir.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity very much. I think uh, it's really great for AgriPulse to give the attention that it has to the specialty crop industry. Agriculture in this country is an amazing, amazing group of individuals and companies that produce so much great food for the whole world. Sometimes uh, we in the produce sector feel like we're a little bit overlooked, uh, but I know that's not the case with AgriPulse, and so I really do appreciate the opportunity to help share some of our Many challenges, as you put it, and many opportunities, I think, as well, as we bring technology forward to uh, make this industry viable in in the
0: future. Our thanks to Western Growers President and CEO Dave Puglia, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.